as announced last Sunday and as I did last Sunday, the next few weeks and maybe periodically, I will take a song and try to develop it into a sermon. The verses of the song teach us. They teach us a lot. Again, I want to stay with Hold to God's Unchanging Hand. It is a good song. It instructs us and gives us hope. You know, it was the song I write the songs that I introduced last week, saying that I write the songs of love and special things. Well, I can't think of anything more special than things of the spiritual nature. Songs are meaningful. They give expression to various aspects of our lives. We have different types of music, different genres. In fact, a quick internet search told me that the website Spotify has 1,300 categories of music. Another site said there were 1,505. Kind of an odd number, but 1,500. So there are numerous categories of music. Some will be cultural to specific groups. Some will be children's songs. Some will be patriotic songs, blues, pop, classical. We have all types of music. We have songs of faith and praise. Songs that stir our hearts as we think about the things of God. They motivate us. Strengthen our sense of faith. They give us an idea of what the author was going through. And maybe even how we might relate in some ways to that author. Hold to God's Unchanging Hand is the song I chose for this first series. As I said last week, there are three verses in our songbook. There are four that were written. Each verse, as we take a look at it in light of Scripture, instructs us to better understand what God is trying to communicate to us, what the author was trying to communicate to us. And so we're holding to God's unchanging hand. If you look at and read the second verse, trust in him who will not leave you, whatsoever years may bring. If by earthly friends forsaken, still more closely to him cling. When you think about that verse, the first word is trust. What is trust? We all have some level of an understanding of trust. But what exactly is trust? We all set an alarm clock perhaps this morning, although as you get a little bit older, you have... Maybe not the need of an alarm clock to get up on Sunday morning. Or if you're like Kathy and me, you have a cat that runs in there and gets you up anyway because it's time she wants to be fed. You can't ignore her for a little while, but maybe not forever. But we all have trust. We had trust when we got into our cars that when we engaged the starter, it would start. And we had a lot of trust in the drivers that are on the road and our own ability to be observant, knowing, knowing and hoping that all of those people that were oncoming traffic were going to practice good driving habits. 
On Wednesday evening, I talked about trust, and I used two illustrations, one of mountain climbing. Not something that is on my list of things to accomplish. I admire those who do it. But I know that those who do it check their equipment before they go out on a climb. After all, the worst time in your climbing experience is going to find out that that rope that you're using is frayed and may not support your weight. You want to know that before so that you can replace it and have one that you can put your trust in. And your trust in that rope is going to be, will it hold my weight and the weight of those others who are climbing with me, maybe? The one who is a parachutist, and I've had friends that have jumped out of airplanes. It's not been on my list of things to do. Uh, perfectly good airplane, why would I want to jump out of it? They say it's pretty thrilling, pretty exciting. But I still don't know that I would want to do it. At least not a high percentage chance of would I want to do it. But they trust. They trust in the engineering, the technology that goes into determining that they can do this. They trust in all their equipment. The person who is going like some of my friends have done, they're trusting in the person that rigged the parachute. The person who's an experienced jumper will probably pack his own and is placing a lot of confidence and trust in his ability, her ability to do it correctly. Trust is confidence. It is closely linked to faith. It is that which moves us to really hold on. Hence the chorus, hold to God's unchanging hand. There are many ways that we could illustrate trust, but simply put, we all trust in something. Now, there is a lot of things that we have confidence in that I've said. But we have to put our trust in God. Who is God? Well, God revealed himself to Abraham when he called him. He revealed himself to Noah. Adam and Eve lived with God, walked with God in the garden that God had prepared for them. But because of their sin, they were cast out. But God still wanted a relationship with them. And he planned a plan that he could restore that relationship. And when God called Noah, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he built an ark because he believed God. He had confidence that God would do what he said he would do. And that this ark would get him through. He built it according to the plan. God revealed himself to Abraham. And as he called him, I don't know what he saw in Abraham, but he saw something and he called him and Abraham left. And that was the first demonstration of Abraham's faith, of holding on to God. Ultimately, after going through several tests and failing them to some degree or another, he finally, when he was called and told to take up his son and offer him on the mountain in Genesis 22, he did so unquestioningly, as at least what we read in Genesis 22. And when Isaac asked him, where is the sacrificial lamb? He just said, God will provide. So Abraham had confidence, had trust in God that he would provide what was needed. And then 
We move in biblical history to the book of Exodus where God decided to reveal himself. That he was going to take out his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Because he'd heard the groanings, the cries of an oppressed people, his people in Egypt. And so Moses is there at, the back, at a burning bush. It's not consumed. It's burning. And he's curious and he goes up to it. And God tells him, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And you know the story and you know what happened. And then God says, my simply put way of saying it today is, Moses, you're the one. You're going to go back and tell them that I've sent you. And you're going to bring them out of Egypt. Well, who shall I tell them sent you, sent me? What is your name? I am. I am has sent you. God created the universe, created all things in it. And because we can read in the Bible of his past workings with man, we can have confidence in him. But we have this problem that when it comes to matters of faith, sometimes we struggle with faith. I mean, after all, the Jews wanted signs. We, too, sometimes would like signs. But God has given them to us in the Word of God, in the Bible. In the Gospel of John, we've looked at it in times past, and we'll look at it again today. It's in John chapter 20. So turn with me, if you will. We know that this is after the time that Jesus has raised from the grave, that he's with his disciples. But I want to draw a little attention here in John chapter 20 to verse 18 or 19 and following. And it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and that when they saw this Lord Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had send, said this, this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now that's pretty interesting right there. Jesus has come into a locked room that the disciples made sure were locked so nobody come in because they were afraid of the Jewish people. Because they killed Jesus and they didn't want to get caught up in that. But Thomas was absent. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of his, the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That occurred to me. This thought. How many years had Thomas spent with Jesus and these brothers of his? At least three and a half years from what we're told in Scripture. The life of Christ, his public ministry. If you're with somebody for three and a half years, do you think they're going to lie to you about something as significant as this? I don't know why Thomas didn't believe. But he didn't. I guess it was almost like he thought they were playing a joke on him. But all ten of them playing the same joke? 
You know, there's some things that I might joke with some people about, but I don't think I would be joking about this. To me, this would be a matter of very seriousness and not something for joking. And Thomas said, I have to see it to believe it. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Again, Jesus comes into a room that's locked. Nobody can get in. They've bolted the door shut. The windows are shut. Jesus is there. Had to be a pretty surprising time for Thomas. I wonder if the disciples were saying, okay, this is fun. We get to see Jesus again. Jesus knew what Thomas had said. He told him, put your hand here. How would he have done that unless he wasn't with them? And that's going to build on for later, of course. Put your hand out. See my hands. Put your hand out. Place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And he gave him room to believe. But he goes on from that and says, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And Peter puts us in that same category in 1 Peter chapter 1. You and me. He's talking to those Jews or Christians facing a dispersion, facing persecution, And he tells them in chapter 1 about their trials is so that if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, verse 6, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your souls, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Blessing on those who, in the midst of persecution, maybe when they were starting to doubt a little bit, but were holding on and just dealing with it, they believe, and they haven't seen. We have to believe. And then... We move on. In the 91st Psalm, I was listening to a sermon yesterday while I was doing some work at the house. Kathy and I share in the work around the house. I put on earmuffs so I can listen to sermons on my phone. Klein Payton was who I was listening to, former director of the Sunset School of Preaching. Founder of it. And he goes and starts in Psalm chapter 91. Psalm 91. And here's why we can trust in the Lord. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He's a refuge. God is a refuge. 
a place where we can go for security and safety. You know, I think in the law, there was a place for those who may have killed someone by accident. They could flee to a city of refuge. And if they were found in the city of refuge, no one could do anything to them. Because it was not done with malice. It was an accident. But somebody might take that accidental death and say, you killed my brother, so I'm going to kill you. God said no. Now they would go through and it would be proven and determined that it was an accident and they could remain in the city of refuge. And as long as they remained in the city of the of refuge, no one could harm them. A refuge. A fortress, we get the idea of something that's impenetrable, impregnable, that is going to withhold the, the onslaught of the enemy attacks. And the psalmist continues and says, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. Holding fast to God. As he closes this psalm, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God is there for us. So we hold on to him. We trust in him who will not leave you. And this is what I read in reading of Second Kings chapter 18. By the time the kingdom had divided, there were good kings in Judah and there were bad kings. Hezekiah was a good king. And in 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 5, it tells us what Hezekiah did. Well, starting in verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down Asherah, broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. God was with Hezekiah. Why? Because Hezekiah was with God. That's what we need to do. Trust in Him who will not leave you. We need to trust in God because He is a shelter. He's a refuge. The Hebrew writer said in chapter 13, and it's a quote, if you will, or a, a reference to that which is found in Deuteronomy, probably chapter 31. But in Hebrews... I thought I marked it. Hebrews chapter 13. And then verse 5 and 6. 
says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, I think it's interesting that the Hebrew writer prefaced this quote from Deuteronomy. I will never leave you nor forsake you, saying, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why would that be? For dealing with Christians, Jewish Christians, most likely, who are in danger of going back, leaving Christianity and going back to their Jewish ways. And one of the things that's so easy to do when you're leaving that which you know to be true, Christianity, you're going back to this other because it's comfortable. And when we start trusting in things and not in God, we've missed it. And the biggest thing that we trust in is our money. Why? Because money will buy us food. It'll buy us gasoline. It'll buy us cars. It'll buy us a house. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Trusting in the things of this earth keep us bound to this earth. But God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I look back to the life of the apostles. I don't know why God works in his ways. But James, brother of John, was killed in Acts chapter 12. He was perhaps the second Christian martyr. Stephen being the first. Acts chapter 7. Herod saw that it pleased the people, so he arrests Peter. Puts him in prison, going to bring him out and have him executed. But that night, an angel of God comes to Peter in the prison and takes him out. Takes him to a house where Christians are praying for him. He's freed. He's no longer in prison. He's no longer in danger of dying. You see, God did not abandon him. Now, he didn't abandon James either. He took him. Just as he took Stephen. I don't know why one Christian apostle is martyred versus another one who's not. It's in God's plan. There have been times in the life of people where they've been abandoned. Children have been abandoned by their parents. Spouses have been abandoned by their spouse. And they abandon their children at the same time. It happens all the time. But if you want somebody who will never abandon you, it's God. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's what the songwriter is putting this together it for us in. Trust in him who will not leave you. And the next verse, whatsoever years may bring. The things that you face in life, you're going to face. You want to face them alone? Or do you want to face them with God? We don't know the days of our life. The psalmist said the years of one's life are three score and ten or four by strength. Seventy, maybe eighty years. Fortunately, some people live a lot longer. Unfortunately, some people don't live quite that long. There's disease, there are accidents, there's war, there's crying. The lives of people are taken away and it's devastating when a family goes through the pain of losing a loved one. I was listening to Richard Rogers yesterday as well. 
And he said, the mountaintop experiences are great. Climbing, you get to the top of the mountain, you go through all that pain and struggle, and you get there and you rejoice. And wouldn't it be nice to stay on the mountaintop? But what do you learn on the mountaintop? Not nearly what you learn when you're in the valley. You have to go through the valley because that's where you learn. And as you climb out of that valley, you learn the grandeur of God. You learn of his faithfulness. No matter what the years bring. The time in the valley, it's painful. Job was in the valley. Think of his time in the valley. We read of Job in chapter 1. He's blameless, walking before God. He has been blessed with stupendous amount of riches. He's got a family. And it's all taken away from him. But he holds his integrity. He holds on to God. Then his health is taken from him. But he still holds on to God. His wife is there saying, just curse God and die. Why? Because she's in pain and can't bear to see him this way. But he holds on to his integrity. But think about what he lost as well. The material things were tremendous. He lost his respect. He used to sit outside the city gates with the elders of the city. He was well respected. He had some friends that came to visit him to encourage him. And then they turned out to be pointing the finger. Job, you did something wrong. You sinned. You're a terrible person. How would you like it if a friend came to you when you're at your lowest moment and say, you're a sinner. God's judging you. You need to clean up your life. It's not my idea of a friend. But Job learned in the valley that God was still on the throne and that God was there for him and God blessed him. Jenny Wilson, the author of the song, lost her ability to walk at age four. Her father had died prior to that or shortly after that, I believe. I don't know what she went through. One moment she's a healthy four-year-old running and playing. The next minute she's sick and now she can't walk. Her father dies. I mean, she faced a lot of tragedy. But she was given to reading, and she was given faith. And so she trusted God. It's time in the valley that shapes you. It shaped Job, it shaped Jenny. It's time in the valley that we learn that God will not leave us. If we're faithful and true to him. When our sons died, we had, I mean, it was devastating. We had Heather when Jeremy died. And we had, I'll say, a baby faith. But it drove us back to the word of God and fellowship with his people. When Matthew died, same thing. We had Abby and Heather and our grandchildren. It was painful. But we knew God was there. And we know he's there today. And it's almost maybe a little embarrassing to say that maybe my faith was stronger then than it is now. Because it's learning in the valley of the shadow of death. As the psalmist would say, that it's you're learning to trust and hold on to God. So whatsoever years may bring, 
still more closely to him clean. I close with the words of Paul in, in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Back up just a little bit where Paul says in verse 11, he says that he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And he says, which is why I suffer as I do. You see, if Paul wouldn't have become a Christian, he wouldn't have been suffering. Nobody would have been trying to kill him. Nobody would have been trying to imprison him. But because God saw him, Jesus met him on that road to Damascus, and he was, well, he was sent into Damascus. And Ananias preached to him the words of life. And he said to him, why do you wait? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And he starts defending Christianity, defending Christ and God's plan. Now the Jews want to kill him. And he says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Life. Life had been entrusted to him. The gospel had been entrusted to him, we know. But life had been entrusted. He now had life and he knew it. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So hold to God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. That's what we do. Time is filled with swift transition. Trust in him who will not leave you. Hold to God's unchanging hand. I don't know what you're going through today, but you might be going through some things. Maybe you're now in the valley. But trust me, God is there with you. He knows what's going on in your life. Just as he knew that Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I see him with myself and touch his wounds I don't care what you friends of mine have said. I don't care that I've lived with you for three and a half years. I have to see it for myself. God knew. Jesus knew. He's there with you. He knows what's going on. And he'll never leave you nor forsake you. So if you'd like to respond to the invitation of Jesus this morning, for whatever it may be, please come to him while together we stand and while we sing.